0: When we think about the fact that the Bible is provided to us as the redemption story where God, you know, if you recall back in the Garden of Eden, that horrible, we just read about it this week. If you're doing the, the walkthrough, we just, it should be fresh on your mind that here we have the, these two created beings, um, Knowing what God expected of them, deciding to turn away or, or disobey, and do something God told them specifically not to do—you know, of course they were influenced by Satan, and we can go into the details of that. But the truth is, the, the bottom line is that they disobeyed God, and as a result of that disobedience, everyone in the every one of their descendants—we could talk about how many kids they had and. You know, he was Adam was 130 years old when he had Seth. We just learned that this week, right? Um, all those children. We see Cain and Abel. Cain kills Abel. All this horror has um, plagued humanity from the fall. And so, God, knowing the result of disobedience, he he knew when he told Adam and Eve, "Don't eat from this tree," because. If for no other reason, because I told you not to. He knew that in saying that, that if they were to disobey, it would break the bond that they had had with him. Because you can't be in relationship with God and be disobedient, right? If, if there is no, if, if, if we are uh, walking away from God, how can we walk with him, right? And so God said, okay, I am going to provide for the world, Because of your failure, I am going to provide a means by which mankind can return to me into a relationship, albeit not as perfect as it was prior to the fall, but at least through this redemption process, we could start in motion the work that will ultimately be fulfilled and accomplished when we receive our new bodies and the new heaven and new earth. That's the redemption story. God saying, you failed, you've fallen, now I'm going to provide for you a means to return to me, and in time, our relationship will be fully restored in perfection and perfect unity. Well, the fulcrum, the, the point, the event that was the stamp of that redemption is what we read today. If Christ didn't die, what does Paul say? We're still... You guys remember that? We're still in our sins. Without the perfect... And we're going to get into this, but without the perfect sacrifice of Jesus, we are still stuck in that place of unforgiveness, lostness. And so today... As we take a look at this account of the death of Jesus, we're gonna we want to ask this question: Where are we, as it as it relates to his death? Where where do we stand, um, in connection with this um, tremendous event in history? Let's pray, and then we'll we'll, we'll dig into it. Dear Heavenly Father, uh, this is Your Word, Lord, and and. Um, how we evaluate it how we look at it how we study it both today and on our own as we leave this place lord it is um, it is powerful to save and we trust lord that as we we commit our hearts to understand that that you would you would help us understand so Lord today we ask that you would help us understand that you would teach us your will and that you would um, change us, God, so that with our lives we could honor you and glorify you in the things that we commit to do. In Jesus' name, amen. Everyone in the world has been impacted by the death of Christ, whether directly or indirectly, whether in times past or times present. Um, as I said, this the the Bible's redemption story is that God would bring us back to him. The the redemption event is the death of Christ. It is that work whereby God takes my sin, your sin, historical sin, future. He takes all that sin of every human that has ever lived, and he places it upon the shoulders of Jesus so that he would actually die the death that we're supposed to die. That is the redemption event. Um, there were consequences, as we said, that that came about as a result of Adam and Eve's sin. We think about God cursing the ground. We think about um, enmity existing between creation and, and us to, to some degree. Um, all these consequences exist uh, because of sin. Yet we discover that as the Lord, He persists in this in His commitment to establish communion that he doesn't stop there. We've said oftentimes that God could have, when man failed and when man and woman failed, he could have started all over, right? He could have just wiped out the earth and said, you know what, they messed up. Let me erase that and start with new people and, and do it again. But he didn't do that. He said, okay, this is my creation. They failed. Now I will work toward bringing them back to me. Um this is the best news we could ever know. It's the best news we can know now. It's the best news they could have known then. Yet there are those people in the world and among us even that, that have not accepted the story. There are those that um, haven't honored his death. Not everyone feels the pressure of the weight of the cross in the moment that we see there. In Mark chapter 15, Mark chapter 15 verses 33 through 41, we have this account that reveals the agony of Jesus as he endures the cross. And we get to see in this the varying stages or states of mind of the people that are around the cross. You know, As we've already looked at last week, this group of mockers that were criticizing him, we've already looked in previous weeks of the disciples that were close to him that took off right we we've we've already seen some of the people that witnessed his death and we'll see today who were greatly moved to change as a result of what they experienced but and with all these people then and with the people that live now us we're also in a place as we witness this i was telling brian yesterday i was saying you know if i were to tell you that my cousin's girlfriend just died um most people wouldn't. I mean, you you might think about it, and you'll move on beyond it because you don't you don't know my, you don't you barely know me probably, you you don't know my cousin. I didn't even tell you his name, and you surely don't know or think about the girl he was dating. So, in in that sense, most of us in this room, if not all of us, would be rather indifferent toward the death of. It doesn't affect us, right? The, the truth is, even though we can think about death in that sense and it not really impacting us, whether we understand it or not or whether we believe it or not or whether we are affected whether we think we're affected by it or not, the death of Jesus affects all of us we we're, we're all greatly impacted by what he did on the cross and and so we have to ask our, ourselves a question as we witness his death, where am I in this great collection of people in your pews there's a I, toward the end there, I put a little, a little card, a little sheet of paper that will provide us an outline of what we're dealing with today. Because what we're going to look at is as we watch Christ on the cross, we're going to look at four types of people, four categories of people that witnessed, either witnessed his death or were impacted by his death. And we want to ask ourselves the question, which one of these groups of people do we fit into? Therefore, it's an alliteration. They all begin with the letter I, so make it a little bit easier. But we want to discover where we find ourselves as we consider the death of Christ. You know, are we close to him? Are we distant from him? Um, Christ's death should undo us. Uh, When we understand what God was performing in that moment, our lives must be changed. We're going to examine the progression of the event and then we're gonna deal with the, the groups of people that we're talking about. Um, let's look back over again. The, the first group of people that we think about in looking at this event are those who were indifferent. We kind of alluded to those earlier, but these are the indifferent people. There were those that were affected by the event but either were not aware or did not care that it occurred. You can think about people that were um, maybe hundreds of miles away, right? There were people that were hundreds of miles away from the cross, yet they were still impacted by it, right? Now, before we can, like, dig into that, let's look again back at the chapter, uh, chapter 15, verse 33. It says, And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. Now, if you're studying this and you've read other books it would be irresponsible for me not to point out some confusion around this concept of the sixth hour. Right? If you read the book of John in chapter 19, we see him saying that at the sixth hour, Jesus was before Pilate. And then here we see that at the sixth hour, Jesus is actually on the cross. So some may ask, I didn't ask until I looked into this because I was, wow, I didn't realize that. What is the significance here? What's going on here? How how do we reconcile those two things? Um, There were two methods of describing time in that period. There was the Jewish method of talking about time, and then there was the Roman method of talking about time. The Roman method is very similar to what we do. When we say it's 10 o'clock, we think it's either 10 o'clock in the morning or it's 10 o'clock in the evening. Well, for the Jews, they base their hours of the day on the working day. When does the sun come up? When the sun comes up and it's shining it's a time for us to work, right? When it goes down, work ceases. So for 12 hours of the day, approximately, there's a time of work, and for 12 hours, there's a time of of sleeping or resting. And so for, for Mark, Matthew, and Luke, these are the synoptic gospels, we have three men speaking as Jews explaining the instance of time that occurred because in all the synoptics, we have this statement, the sixth hour, that, uh, provided for us, and so if we were to understand it in that way, we see that Mark is talking about six, the sixth hour being 12 o'clock, six hours from 6 a.m. when the day started, the workday started. Whereas John, as he has done oftentimes in giving time, we think about the the instance where he's talking to the woman at the well in John chapter four, verse six, where it says that Jesus goes to the, to the well to, to, to draw water. And it says that that happened um, at the, I think it says that it happened at the sixth hour in that case, as well, I, I believe, but in that case, we know that water was never drawn in the morning, and so we, we assume then too that paul that John is using the the, uh, the the Roman method of giving time, so I just want to address that because I know that maybe if you read you, you might catch that and not um, capture the point, regardless of how the time is understood or spoken of. The presence of darkness during the middle of the day was something that was worth noting. And the presence of darkness for a full three hours in the middle of the day was something that was important to observe. Um, it, It had to elicit some pause in the minds of those who were observing. You can imagine, you're there, you're watching Jesus die, and all throughout the land, Everything pitch black, no sun, no moon, everything's dark. Um, yeah, it's it surely if you were indifferent to what was happening on the cross, that should have at least caused some sort of response or pause in your mind now this three period this three hour period of darkness educates us about the importance of this moment, so generally people who are indifferent are people who don't. Recognize the significance of a moment, the importance of a moment. Well, this darkness that we that we observe here reveals a few things about what God was doing. Well, first off, it reveals that God um, is actually there; He's present, and that He defines our fears. Look at uh, Exodus chapter twenty. Exodus chapter twenty, we see another instance where darkness occurs. So, Exodus twenty, verses twenty to twenty-one. If you if you know the story here, Moses has been given the Ten Commandments. As he's given the Ten Commandments, God calls him to himself. God appears. And as he appears, we see in verse 20, Moses said to the people, do not fear. And I found this very interesting how he says this. Do not fear, for God has come to test you that the fear of him may be before you that you may not sin. The people stood afar off while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. So one thing that this darkness reveals is that God is going to speak. God is preparing to speak, to say something. And in saying what he's going to say, his goal is to both calm their fears, but also put their fears in context. In other words, it's a good thing to be fearful of God, right? I mean, we have to, that's what reverence is. It is fearing God, it is fearing his, what he does, how he operates, and what he may do should we sin against him. But what he also says here is that your fears can be calmed by you remaining in communion with me, right? And so as God brings about this darkness, the natural response would be to be afraid, right? But God says, hey, don't be afraid because I am here, I am present. And so it's very similar to what we're seeing here in the book of Mark in that section, Another thing that the darkness reveals is that God is about to act. God is about to do something. Look back over in Exodus chapter 10. Exodus chapter 10 is where we have the account of uh, the the Egyptian plagues. There were nine plagues in Egypt, and just before the last and final plagues, Exclamation point! Plague, uh, God gives this other uh, sign. Look at uh, at verse twenty-one. It says here: Then the Lord said to Moses, "To Moses, stretch out your hand toward heaven, that there may be darkness over the land of Egypt." a darkness to be felt. So Moses stretched out his hand toward the heaven, and there was pitch darkness in all the land of Egypt three days. And so here we see God bringing forth darkness just before just this bringing this just before this final plague. And what's the final plague? You guys remember? Death of the firstborn. What was the institution that God put in place as a provision for that final plague? The Passover, right? The Passover is where God passes over the sins of the people that are in these homes that have what over their doorpost The blood of the lamb, right? And so we see this very, very similar, ominous picture where God brings this darkness over the people, just before he, he brings about this great judgment on the land. It's very interesting how you see the both, the connection between the two events there as God works through this element of darkness. Um, another thing that the darkness reveals is that it's fulfilling God's promise to judge Israel. Look at Amos. Amos chapter 8, verses 9 through 10. Um, Amos is in the Old Testament, he is a minor prophet, and if you have your pew Bible, you're going to be looking on page 765, no, 760, 770, 770, 770. and uh, we're going to look at eight, chapter 8, verses 9 to 10. Again, we're trying to understand the context of this darkness. God is throwing darkness over the land. What is he doing? What is he saying? We see he's telling the people not to fear because he's with them. We see him preparing this great judgment, which would follow the darkness. And then thirdly here, we see God judging Israel, verses 9 to 10. And on that day, declares the Lord, I will make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth in broad daylight. It will turn your, I will turn your feast into mourning and all your songs into lamentation. I will bring sackcloth on every waist and baldness on every head. I will make it like the morning for an only son and the end of it like a bitter day. Again, this is prophetic. God saying, hey, I'm, I'm, I'm about to judge the world in, in judging my only son. And as I prepare to do that, and it gives the reason, some of the reasons for doing it there, this darkness will exist. And so it's a fulfillment of prophecy. It's, it's commitment to a promise that God has made. The last thing we see in this, this kind of display of darkness, we can look at Joel chapter 2. Joel is right before the book of Amos. Um, Joel chapter 2. So if you go a few pages back, 762 of your pew Bible. 7, uh, 7, it says, And I will show wonders in the heavens and on the earth, blood and fire and columns of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood, when? Before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. For those who were aware of the promises that God had made through his prophets, they should have considered this darkness Obviously, as a, as a judgment of God, but also as a promise that God would ultimately, through this judgment, provide hope for those who were under the darkness. And so, this idea of being indifferent would be synonymous if we if we knew these things about what God was doing in the darkness. If we knew all these things about how He was acting and behaving among or how He was interacting among the people, um, to, to be to be indifferent would really be to, to be uh, foolish. Uh, for those who were aware of the way that God had revealed himself in times past, this ominous darkness should have awakened their minds. Indifference um, can also, however, be associated with unawareness. We said earlier that there are people that aren't even around the cross. You know, it says that darkness was over the land, but it doesn't say that darkness was over, you know, South America, if you want to use those in you know, the common vernacular. It says that darkness is over the land. So there are people who are not around the cross or in, in Jerusalem or in Judea at this time that, that would have seen this. And so how does this, how does this affect them? They are indifferent to it, but not because they're choosing to be indifferent. They're indifferent because they don't know what's going on. The fact is though, because we know the rest of the story, that death that Christ would exhibit on the cross would ultimately be applied to them as well. Because we know that the gospel would ultimately go to the ends of the world. And so although they may have been indifferent because of proximity, they were not unaffected because we know that God in in providing his son and providing the gospel would ultimately bring that message to them at some time in the the future. The, The hope is that no one in this room here is indifferent, knowing that we understand or at least are aware of the work of God in Christ, as described in our text today. We, we see, again, um, if we keep on going down in, in Mark chapter 33, I'm sorry, chapter 15, verse 33, and then down to 34, and at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Uh, Pastor Nate hit on this last week. We know that in this in this event, when Jesus proclaims that that declaration, what verse is he quoting? What chapter is he quoting? You guys remember Psalm 22, where David says, "God, why have you forsaken me?" But we know, in reading that Psalm, that David that 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 David through it was giving forth a prophecy. We know that in Jesus reciting that Psalm, he's proclaiming all of the elements of it. Um, Verses twenty-seven to twenty-eight of the of Psalm twenty-two say, "All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations shall worship before you. For kingship belongs to the Lord, and He rules over the nations." That was on Jesus's mind as He quotes Psalm twenty-two. Another thing that was on His mind was from Psalm twenty-two, verse twenty-five: "From you comes my praise in the great congregation." Right. Another thing, save me from the mouth of the lion. You have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. And so in as much as Jesus was feeling the pain of being separated from his father in that moment, becoming the sin of the world, you know, uh, 2 Corinthians chapter five, verse 21 says that, that for our sake, God made him to become sin who knew no sin so that we might become who? The righteousness of God. God allowed his son to become sin so that we could, be, could, could know and become the righteousness of God. Um, and so in as much as Jesus was experiencing, that, experiencing the weight of all of our sins upon him, uh, he was doing so with the understanding that it was for the purpose of bringing us closer to God. And so again, it it makes this this moment extremely important. Indifference has no place when considering the truth of the cross. And I think we can argue that along with the resurrection, these two events, Jesus's death and ultimate resurrection where he demonstrates his power over death, we see ultimately the most powerful and impactful event that occurred and has occurred in the life of all of humanity. So there's no reason to be indifferent. You know, indifference is displayed in a lot of different ways. Uh, there are people that um, either re- refuse to, 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 to listen to God or, or, or find out what he wants them to do, to, to seek him out, to study his word, to be in the fellowship and the family of believers. There are people that, that are kind of that kind of indifferent. And then there's people that ultimately their death is much more important than Christ's death. You know, their most important thing is to, is to survive and to make sure they have enough money in the bank and enough stuff, enough possessions in their hands and enough people around them so that they could either um, not be pained by the difficulties of life or they could, in, in their mind, enjoy this existence on earth. That is an indifference which will, that will ultimately ultimately lead to an eternity apart from God. And so my prayer this morning is that for this first quadrant of people, that none of us are in that category. Because to, to be indifferent toward the things of the cross is to be in a horrible, a horrible state. Uh, the, the next type of people that were present at the cross, okay, we, we saw these people last week, but these are the irreverent. The irreverent. I'm sorry, you can't really read that. I'm not sure if you can see it. Maybe you can um, These are the irreverent. There are those who witnessed the crucifixion that continued to mock Jesus even as his agony increased. They they see him on the cross. They hear him proclaim various things. There's there's seven words that Jesus, Jesus says. Today, we see his fourth word, the Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. But there are many things that Jesus says on the cross. Yet, as he's experiencing this undeserved death, there are people around there that are mocking him. Continuing to mock him, look back over at uh, verse 35. And some of the bystanders hearing it said, hey, behold, he's calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed, and gave it to him to drink, saying, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come and take him down. They hear Eloi which sounds a lot like Eli, so they, they think, oh, he must be saying Elijah. And, and they also, if, if they're um, familiar with Jewish belief and teaching, they understand that Elijah was going to be very closely connected with Jesus, and so they say to themselves, hey, well, he's calling for Elijah. Let's go see if Elijah will it's Horrible. This is irreverence a disdain or disregard for that which is holy. There are many ways that irreverence can be displayed. Uh, It can be displayed as a blatant disrespect toward the actions of God, as in this account today It's a tremendous disrespect. Um, Irreverence can be displayed as a mistreatment of principles to which God has called us to adhere. You know, God says, hey, here are some principles you're to live by. Here's some truths you're to live by some some rules to obey to disobey those clear rules to, to disobey that clear command is a reverence um, it's also uh, seen seen as an unwillingness to act upon direct demands that God has placed upon us there are those of us who are in specific situations you know we think about the revealed general revelation where God has said that um, you know he's given the Ten Commandments you shouldn't kill people right that's pretty clear in Scripture. There are some other things that are in Scripture that are, are clear teaching, but there are some other things that God reveals to us individually as we walk with Him, as He reveals to our hearts and calls us to obey. To to disobey the direction of God in that way, to, to disregard the Spirit of God as He works in us, is a form of irreverence, where we consider the, 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 the instruction of God, the direction of God um, as being worthless. A, another means of demonstrating irreverence is a lack of repentance when our sin is revealed. You know, oftentimes God will reveal to us ways in which we've betrayed him or forsaken him. Uh, And in those times we have, we can make one of two responses. We can say to God, well, I don't really care that you're upset with what I've just done. You think when you hear that, you're like, whoa, who would say that? Right. But there are people that say that. We can also respond, however, with, a, with, a, with a, a heart that says, Lord, I agree with what you've said about my sin. I turn away from that sin and desire to walk in the path that you've put before me. How do we summarize that in one word? What is that called? Say it out loud. It's repentance, right? right? That is repentance. Agreeing with God over what he has said about our sin and turning from that sin so that we might walk with him. To not do that is a form of irreverence. Another form of irreverence is a lack of fear over the consequences of sin. You know, there are people, God has made it very clear that the soul that sineth, it shall die. It, it, the soul that sinneth it shall die. And God has also made it clear that there are certain things that we can do today in our own lives based upon what, the way the government works and the way our society works that if we commit those sins and those, those, um, errors as it were there are consequences to doing so there are people that will know the consequences of sin know the impact of, and what that sin has caused and hurt the people around them but yet even in knowing that will choose to continue in that sin without a respect or regard for the people that they're sinning against or ultimately and more importantly a respect and a regard for the god that has called them to serve him that is a reverence that 's irreverence, and it is uh, the road of irreverence is a road that leads to ultimate disaster because through that road we end up in the seat of judgment and ultimately in an, in an eternity apart from God this is what these these men who were who were who were blaspheming Jesus at the moment um, could have could have experienced it. They did not repent afterward. Um, Romans chapter one is a very uh, beautiful treatment of this topic of irreverence. It, it provides us with, in the, in that chapter, Paul gives us really kind of this progression of mind and action of people who treat God as though he is not to be honored and feared. Look over in chapter one of Romans. Turn there, we won't read the whole thing. We're going to read Romans chapter 1, verses 18 to 25. Romans 1, 18 to 25. I'm sure many of you have read it before, and so some of it will be familiar. Um, But let's join together. Verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Verse 22 Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. Therefore, God gave them up to the lusts of their hearts, to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever, amen. Paul, in his very philosophical, didactic way, gives a clear explanation of what it means to have irreverence toward God. And he sums it up. The word translated irreverence, he actually uses there where he says that... um, For although they knew God, verse 21, they did not honor him as God or give thanks. That is, by definition, and in term, in Greek term, irreverence. Uh, First, we see that God makes it plain to humanity what he expects of us. God has clearly provided in creation, in his creation, how creation is supposed to honor him and his creation. Again, if you've been reading with us in, in, the, in the study, we saw that this week, where God creates the world, and he creates these animals, he creates these trees, he creates all these things, he creates fruit. Have you guys paid attention? Have you went and bought fruit lately? You know, we're coming to the end of the season, and whether it's oranges or watermelon or lemons or whatever, these fruit, these sweet fruit are super sweet. And my wife and I, we were cutting some of that fruit, and we're like, man. It's amazing that God created fruit. But to think that God created fruit, and he created humans, and he created gnats, and spiders, and all these different things. How can a person who who is reasonable observe creation, or, or let's just say they don't call it creation, but observe what's present and not acknowledge that some very intelligent something... Formed this stuff, right? Of course, we know the story. We know what happened in reading the Word of God, but it's very amazing that God has provided creation to, to allow us to see that, hey, I have a plan. And, and, and I'm good at engineering is what he's saying. I'm good at structuring things. Look at what I've done. Look at how perfectly... Look at the fact that you can breathe. And you don't have to worry about you know, engin- you know, producing some oxygen... Pr- factory to give you air, right? So what God is saying is that I've provided these things so that really man is without excuse. Um, He then grants us the privilege of experiencing his invisible invisible attributes, right? We see the the grass and the flowers and the people and the animals and all that stuff. We can see those things. And, you know, and, and seeing those things, you can start with the basis that, man, how can you deny God? But then God says, hey, I'm also going to give you an awareness of things you can't see. And what are some things that God reveals that we can't see? Well, at a minimum, uh, circumstances, decision, um, you know, rules of governance and life. Why is it that you believe that it's wrong to steal from someone? What is that? What teaches you that, right? And even if, if, even if you aren't a Christian, even if you aren't a follower of Jesus, you know innately this invisible attribute of God that it's wrong to covet your neighbor's wife, for example, or it's wrong to, 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 to as we said before, kill someone or, or to steal something from someone else. It doesn't take, you know, somebody giving you a long treatise on why these things are wrong for you to feel that they're wrong. So these are the invisible attributes of God that he reveals to us, right? He moves on. Another thing he says is that he gives us this awareness of the revealed things which, which causes man to make a, a twofold decision. We, so God reveals his the visible things, he reveals invisible things, and then he says, okay, you got a choice to make. You, you, you'll either um, uh, ignore God and curse him, or you'll honor God and thank him, right? So that's kind of, again, the progression. This is this is kind of irreverence on display and hopefully none of us are in this camp. Um, that's really my prayer is that none of us are in this place. But we have that choice to make. Have we honored God with our lives? Have we thanked him for what he's done? Or are we people that ignore him for what he does, ignore how he acts, ignore what he's revealed, and ultimately curse him by our um, discontent with what he's done? If we choose, as as Paul says in Romans, to ignore God and curse him, the result will ultimately be a darkened heart. God says, hey, when you ignore my revealed will, when you you ignore the things that I reveal to your heart, at some point, your disregard for who I am will lead to darkness, will lead to a place where you're you're feeling around, trying to find God, trying to, you may not say you're trying to find God, but you're going you're gonna to feel around trying to find something to to, to fill a void that you have because you've ignored the ultimate provider who, who, who gives us life. And then we see it at the, the last kind of progression of things is that as our hearts are dark, darkened and as we're feeling around for how to use stuff, what do we end up doing? We end up misusing creation. So we've, God has revealed himself through physical things, invisible things. We've, he's given us a choice to make to whether we will follow him or not follow him. Some of us have chosen not to follow him. As a result of not following him, our hearts become darkened. And as a result of our heart becoming darkened, now we're going around, feeling around for stuff and we're, we're, we're grabbing a hammer when we're supposed to be grabbing, uh, you know, a, a wrench or something. We're, we're we're trying to use what god has created for for purposes that they weren't created for. You know, he goes on and he, he describes, we won't go into it now, but he describes what those cases are. People who are, you know, taking uh, you know, images of birds and things and and turning them into actual gods to worship. That's misusing creation because we're living in darkness. You know, some of us are doing that. Some of us, because we don't understand who God is, because we're not following God, because we're not, we're not, we haven't committed ourselves to Christ, we're just feeling around, trying to grab whatever we can to have a sense of peace and contentment and joy in our lives. And what God is saying is that that effort is futile. It won't lead to ultimate clarity or or peace or joy. And so may we not be indifferent people. May we not be irreverent people. Um, One more verse from there, Romans chapter five on this topic, Romans chapter five, verses six to eight. You can either turn there, you can just, I'm going to read it for you. Romans chapter five, verses six to eight. These irreverent men of the cross and even us who are irreverently not recognizing who God is or honoring him as God, this is a great provision that God makes. Verse 6, for while we were still weak, at the right time, died uh, God, Christ died for who? For the ungodly, for the irreverent. Even even people who don't deserve it, Jesus dies, right? Right. Um, For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would even dare to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. This is the scene that we have in Mark chapter 15. That while we were still irreverent, dishonoring God, Christ takes upon himself our irreverence, our, we may not say it this way, but our hatred toward God and he dies for us. So there are the indifferent people, there are the irreverent people, and then uh, thirdly, there are the intrigued people. Intrigued. Um, Some are moved by witnessing the death of Christ. How they respond to, to what they've witnessed will determine whether this emotional reaction will lead to ultimate wholeness. I would say that if you're here today in this room, then you're, you're likely in one of these bottom two quadrants. I, I wouldn't think an indifferent person, unless you were dragged here by somebody, right? I wouldn't think an indifferent person would be here. But maybe, maybe you are indifferent. You just showed up because you want to see what's going on. But in the fact that you're here and you're, you're trying to see what's going on, then I would say you fall into this category, at a minimum. You, you, you've come to a church and you, and you said to yourself when you, when you were standing outside the church, and maybe you've been here before, but you said, I wonder what goes on in here. I wonder who these people are on the wall. I wonder what that book is that they always read and talk about. I wonder what those songs are all about they're singing. Why do they have a screen with with things up here, right? That's intrigue. Because you're wondering in in that analysis, what's going on? And why is it going on? There were people at the foot of the cross in that state. Look back over in chapter chapter 15. um, uh, Verse 37, And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly, this was the Son of God. And some translations, is actually a Son of God. And we can go into that at some point. But um, we see an intrigued group of people. I mean, how could you... Um, again witnesses event you're you're there at the foot of the cross you you've watched this man go through a trial you you think he's innocent because it's like well why are they so why do they hate this guy so much i mean if if you're just a roman soldier you're thinking well he hasn't killed anybody i mean he he's just he seems like a decent person matter of fact one of these guys had on his mind the 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 need to to at least try to quench his thirst we don't see it here in, in Mark, but in, in uh, I believe John's gospel, he, in, in giving the account, he actually quotes Jesus saying, I'm thirsty, I thirst. And so after Jesus says this, one of those guys felt it, it necessary to grab some of that sour wine that they used to quench their thirst and put it on a sponge and give it to Jesus. So, at, you know, you can say that they gave it to him because they wanted to extend this period of, of, of the scene, this episode, this, this show, as it were. But some may say that, well, he gave him that that because he was sincerely concerned about him being in pain on the cross. Regardless of what it was, there were people there that were at the foot of the cross um, that were intrigued. And we also know that if you're if, if you were in the temple and you're standing there and you know off at a distance on that hill of Calvary, there's this there's this man who in in your mind was defaming the temple or or making it look bad or whatnot. You know he's on the cross somewhere, and all of a sudden you're standing, and what starts to happen? You can imagine if we were here and then there's a big crack at the top. Now, in this case, the, uh, the 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 veil that was being torn was the veil that separated the 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 kind of normal area of the temple, the sanctuary you can call it, with the Holy of Holies. And so as this as this this rip occurs in that curtain where only the high priest could go, if you're witnessing this happen, you have to be intrigued by it. It's like, oh, whoa, whoa, what, what just happened? It was dark for three hours. I don't know what that was all about. All of a sudden now, this thing is ripped. What's going on? You, it, you have to ask the question, right? You know, As people today, we have to ask the question, what is this about? Of course, we know that in the separating, as we read Hebrews, because the reason that veil was torn was to show us that now our access into the Holy of Holies has been made possible through whom? Through Jesus. So now no longer do we need these sacrifices that the high priest would provide. The great high priest has given his own life and provided us with an opportunity to come before God with him to profess how great he is, right? Right? And so we know these things because God is, some of us have, have become aware of these things. But there are people who are still in the state of being intrigued. And unfortunately, it can be a very dangerous place because when you, are, when you remain in this intrigued state, you, you also become susceptible to false teaching, to, to, to heresy, as they, as they call it. I was talking to Brian yesterday and he was saying that there are these Mormon that come to his house occasionally and and every once in a while, they invite them over for dinner. And these guys, these guys are so zealous. These, these two young men are so zealous about what they're doing and what they're saying. And, and, and one of the things we, we discussed was that the, these are intrigued men. Unfortunately, they've been taught the wrong thing about Christ. And un- unfortunately, if we remain in that intrigued state and we don't pursue God for who he is and we don't pursue his word so that we would be changed by it, we we could be in a very dangerous position. And so may we be people who don't just stay there, but we actually move to seek God, to understand what his death means and understand what he's calling me to do as a result of that death. Amen? Amen. Um, the last person that we can look at briefly as we close, is the inspired person. The inspired person. Because we, this, is, this is where intrigue transitions into hope and life. It goes on to say that in verse 40, there were some also women, there were also women looking on from a distance among whom were Mary Magdalene, and Mary, the mother of James, the younger, and of Joseph, Hosea, or Joseph, and Salome. When he was in Galilee, they followed him and ministered to him, and there were also many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. To be inspired by the death of Christ is to be made alive by him. Verses, 30, verses 40 and 41 give us this window, this picture of these women who ministered to Christ throughout his life or at least throughout his ministry life. Um, Mary, the mother of James the Less, was present at Christ's burial, and she also was the one um, who came out early to anoint Jesus' body after he had died. Mary of Magdala, or Mary Magdalene, was delivered from a demon possession, which was recorded in Luke chapter 8. She's the Mary who stood at the tomb weeping when Jesus approaches her having mistaken him for a gardener, if you guys remember that. So these are women that were consistently with Jesus throughout. They were inspired. Inspired literally means to, to be breathed into, to inhale. In other words, you you have had breath. These are people that have had breath, the breath of God, as it were, breathe into them so that they can now live for God. Um, A few observations about these women that kind of describe their lives. They were a few of the rare individuals who had the courage to be present at the crucifixion. These inspired women did not shrink back at the crucifixion. They were there. How many disciples were present at the crucifixion? How many um, of the twelve, sorry. How many of the twelve were present at the crucifixion? Do you guys know? One. One. Who was it? John, he was the only disciple present at the crucifixion. These women remained faithful throughout it. They were there. They didn't worry about people saying, hey, weren't you with him? They didn't care. They, they were inspired people. They were courageous people, right? Uh, second thing about inspired people is that they were faithful servants providing for his and the disciples' needs maintaining a servant's heart even to the end. We talked about Mary who went to the tomb and actually anointed Jesus' body, right? These are women who were faithful and serving throughout. That's an inspired person. If we have had the breath of God breathed into us and we've been given life by the power of God, this should be characteristic of us, that we serve him no matter the cost, no matter the situation, no matter the difficulty, no matter what people say about Um, what we're doing. Uh, And lastly, these are, they were unique in that they witnessed all three events, his death, his burial, and his resurrection. And so as such, they were perfect witnesses of the entire redemptive event, right? They saw his death. They knew what he went through. They knew what he proclaimed. They heard what he proclaimed. They, They saw him actually be buried. They saw him in the ground. They knew he was gone. And then they also witness his resurrection. And so, in those three cases, they were able to say, This is God. This is our Redeemer. He has bought us back from the enemy. Inspired people are redeemed people, and that they've been bought back, delivered from sin. They're reconciled. In other words, they. They they've received favor from God, been brought into harmony with God, and they're saved, right? Um, rescued from a current life of despair into an eternal destiny um, with Him in the future. To each to each of these these uh, groups of of people, we have to say, well, uh, are there people we know that are indifferent? Are there people that we know that are? Um, that are irreverent toward God? How do we deal with them? Uh, Am I irreverent toward God? Are there people that we know that are intrigued that I need to kind of reach out to? And then lastly, we ask ourselves the question, am I inspired? Has has God placed in me his spirit? And as a result of him placing in me his spirit, what am I doing? Do do I look like these women who were so faithful uh, in their lives toward Christ? Do Do I look like uh, those individuals that would, as a result of his resurrection and seeing his life, be changed and be different in the world? Where am I? Where are we? Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we we look at this passage and, and there's there's really no way to um, fully examine the, the all the depth of what you've done in sending your son and, and this episode that we have before us today. But Lord, we do know in a very simple sense that um, you surrendered yourself and that we do know, Lord, that um, in in allowing your son to die and and creating that separation between you and him, um, we have this great opportunity to know life. And so, Lord, we pray, my prayer today is that we would be people that are inspired, that we are people who have your life breathed into our own so that we could live for you with it. In Jesus' name, amen.